we hear the word character, there's probably lots of things that come to your mind. In fact, it is the name of a local restaurant. It's something that we call somebody when they're being a little silly, right? Hey, Johnny, you're being a little silly today. You're quite the character. I heard that one a lot. Anyone else hear that a lot growing up? Quite the character. Larry, thank you for your mission. And uh, so uh, it's also what uh, we long to be known for. We long to be known as Christians of people with good character. Well, maybe also what came to your mind was this idea of cartoon characters or sketching cartoon characters come to your mind. Now, the most famous character in the cartoon world by all means is who? Mickey Mouse, right? There's probably no cartoon that is more famous than that little mouse. In the 1920s, a cartoon, see if anyone remembers this, by the name of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Anybody remember that? Good media. Wow. Justin, how do you remember the 1920s? Okay. Well, there was this Universal Studios that put together this cartoon called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, and it was not making money or success the way they wanted to. And so they employed a guy by the name of Walt Disney to sit down and come up with a new character. So by the spring of 1928, Walt sat down at his desk and began to sketch the character that someday would become Mickey Mouse. Well, you see before you is actually one of the oldest known drawings that Walt did of Mickey Mouse. And you can see from this earliest drawings that, like, it's similar to what we know as Mickey and Mouse, but it's not quite the Mickey Mouse that we know. In fact, Mickey Mouse himself has undergone lots of character developments through his time. In fact, one of those biggest developments he went under was a name change. Mickey was not actually named Mickey when Walt sat down and began to dress him. When he was sketching him, he thought the best name for this thing would be Mortimer the Mouse. So Mortimer the Mouse is replacing Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Neither of those seem very contagious and memorable in your time, in your mind, right? And so as Walt began to uh, sketch these earliest sketchings of Mortimer the Mouse, uh, he created this silent cartoon. There was no speaking. In fact, Mortimer the Mouse was a bit pesty. He would get in trouble and stuff like that. And it's nothing quite like the Mickey Mouse that America knows today that has formed amusement parks around the world and is something that we easily identify when we're in public. His character, his name, and his identity changed over time. Similarly, all of us undergo development as people. Our character undergoes development. Character development in life for the better and for the worse happens to each one of us. And sometimes we can feel like we're living into this mold of what we think a Christian needs to look like or act like. We, we kind of sketch out this perfect image of what we think it's going to mean to live as a Christian, and then we try to fit ourselves into that mold. So, we kind of are born as Mortimer Mouse, but for popularity, we trade ourselves to Mickey Mouse. In this series, Character, I hope that we can begin to look at 
not what a Christian should look like, but rather what traits are innately in us as Christians. What four character traits should be identifiable in us as followers of Jesus. And, and for that reason, I'm saying that uh, our series is about sketching out how four trait, these four traits that should define our character, both as individuals and as a church community. And in this first week, we're going to be looking at a trait of honor and how honor should define us both as followers of Jesus, but also us overall as a community, that honor should be something people see on us and experience with us as they are here. Now, like character, honor probably brings up a whole bunch of different things. We want to be known as being honorable. We understand that our country likes to honor things. And, and honor has a big definition. And we're going to define it here in a minute. But one of my favorite stories of honor has become an online viral sensation lately. During the rise of Germany, during the World Wars, there was a man named Sir Nicholas Winton. Winston. What he was famous for was realizing that as Germany rose to power that the children were being shipped off and, and tested on. So he began to smuggle children out of Nazi Germany. In fact, by the time that he was done, he had rescued 669 children out of Nazi Germany. Now, he rescued them because he saw in them God. He saw in them this, this deeply trait that he needed to honor. In himself, he saw that it was good to honor the life of others. But that is not the part of honor I want to push out this morning. In fact, I think the best part of honor in this story is how those children in which he rescued decided to honor him near the end of his life. For that reason, I'm going to invite the cameras, to, uh, the cameras, the, the uh, lights to be dimmed here for a minute, if someone can. And I'm going to play just a quick three-minute clip of the way that those 669 children that Sir Winton uh, saved honored him. is the list of all the children. This is Vera Dermott, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton.
Is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please? guy who he didn't brag about it it took 50 years for this story to come to life this story that he had hidden in his attic some little chest where he just kept the names of kids that he smuggled but 669 lives were affected by his work affected by his work in such a way that they wanted to manifest honor for him it's a powerful story when we talk about honor as I said, there's probably many things that come to our mind. And so an effort to kind of put us all in the same train of thought, so we can understand the same lens, so we can understand that what I mean this morning when we talk about honor, I want to take a second and look at the definition of honor. It's honesty, fairness, or integrity in one's beliefs and actions. It's a source of credit or distinction, of high respect as for worth, merit, or rank, such respect manifested high public esteem, fame, glory. Now, out of all those definitions, there's one that I want us to focus on this morning. And that, allow this to be both your lens and your foundation, uh, your understanding, our shared understanding of what we are going to talk about this morning as we talk about honor. And, and that is uh, the definition that says honor is such respect manifested. I love the way that those families in which he affected honored Sir Winton. They manifested respect out of honor. Now there's two realities that we all share and that's one that we all love to be honored for something. We all love to be affirmed. We all love to have somebody say what I really honor about you is this. And often the other thing that we all share, another reality of this is well, we often have this idea of what it means to be honored and how we get to be honored. And so what we do is begin to trade who we really are for this kind of cookie-cutter image of who we think we need to be so that we can get others' affirmations and honor. In this way, we end up trading our identity, that thing that God gave us, with uh, in exchange for other people's affirmations so that we can be honored. And then what happens is the system repeats, and when we see somebody living in a way that's different than us, or a way that we don't like, or doing something that we don't agree with, we can't honor them because they're not taking the time to fit in the mold that we fit into. As a dad of three girls, I found it how ironic that they looked so similar when they were born. In fact, you would hold up images from the first few days that each of my girls were born. Their pictures would almost be indistinguishable if they were not dated in names. But within a few days of them being born, I could already begin to tell the way that personalities would be different than their predecessors. You parents can remember those times, right? And, and within a few weeks or maybe a few months, I could already develop and see 
uh, the way that their character, their passions, their interests, the things that would identify them were already beginning to emerge and separate them from their other sisters. My desire to call out and honor each one of their uniquenesses changes how I then parent each one, how I show support for each one, how I love on each one, how I hold each one accountable. It changes what I let one do and explore and maybe not another one. All of us has unique skills that we learn over time. All of us have unique character traits that are birthed in us and then transformed when following Jesus. And each one of us has unique personalities and identities that we are innately born with. The unique identities of my daughters were shaped and developed by what they learned by Katie and I, but they are not a result of Katie and I. Look and think about your grandchildren and your children from a young age. You know there's an innate personality and character that is already developed in them that has nothing to do with learned traits or copycatism. Make that a word? They are birthed with a personality and a character that God alone has given them. Early spiritual fathers referred this as this sense of identity that we are born with as our true selves. You'll hear lots of early spiritual fathers referring to the Christian is called to develop their true selves. And, and Quakers would call this uh, their birthright gifts. And Parker Palmer, a Quaker author, has done a lot of writing around this in a book called Let Your Life Speak. He's, he writes this. He says, We all arrive in this world with birthright gifts. Then we spend the first half of our lives abandoning them or letting others disabuse us of them. As young people, we are surrounded by expectations that we may have little to do with who we really are, expectations held by people who are not trying to discern our selfhood, but fit us into slots. All of us are born with birthright gifts. And in our quest for affirmation or honor or the safety of fitting in, we begin to trade those identities for which we have been born with for the expectations of others sure if I would ask you, you could name something that you are suppressing this morning because you're afraid it won't be affirmed or honored by others. And to a fault, we have churches and family systems that weed out our true identities, those things that God has given us so that we can match others and match others' expectations and fit on healthy modes and molds made by our church and family systems. It isn't right. It isn't what God wants. But we then are willing to do this because we think, or unless we become what other people want, uh, we aren't right, we aren't wanted, and we aren't honored by others in church community. And that attack on our identity isn't the work of discipleship. It is not the work of discipleship. It is the work of sin and the evil one who loves to undermine our identity at any chance he can. Our church systems have especially failed around this idea of honor and calling. As a result, we have expectations on pastors that are not biblical. We have teachers who should be serving in encouraging ministries. We have introverts who are confused and think they're extroverts. We have pew sitters who are scared to serve but actually should be our teachers. 
These individuals are confused because they've never been allowed to have their giftings called out and honored. And they realize that they don't fit into the mold of what is honored. And let your life speak, author Parker Palmer writes this of an old Jewish tale. Now listen, in. there's a Hasidic tale that reveals with amazing brevity both the universal tendency to want to be someone else and the ultimate importance of becoming oneself. Rabbi Souza, when he was an old man, said, In the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zusa? This morning, as we talk about honor, we are talking about how we can honor that birthright gift or identity and calling in somebody, not what we expect or want them to be. As a side note, that doesn't mean we just let people do whatever we want, and you just got to honor me as I do this and that. Uh, in helping others describe, define, to describe or define their real selves, uh, sometimes it's a rough road of learning what we are not. I actually think that I have been blessed by the time that I spent outside of the church because I was forced to face my birthright gift in my era outside of the church and not ever have anyone tell me what I am not. And for that reason, I think I'm more confident in my identity, which can rub people the wrong way, right? Because I've had this chance to depend on who it is that God made me at the core of who I am. I've never had people telling me what I'm not. And so for the most part, we in the church system have allowed people to serve because we've only created a few slots of what it looks like to serve, and we honor the people that are willing to change themselves to fit in there. But sometimes learning what we are is a rough road of learning what we are not. And there's a Quaker saying that I've been reflecting on a lot lately. It says, sometimes you don't see an open door ahead. You pay attention to the closed doors that are behind you. Guidance sometimes, learning what we are and what we are not, doesn't always just, there it is. Sometimes we pay attention to the doors that have closed behind us. Our job as the church and as followers of Jesus is to honor our true selves and our birthrights of each other. Because, as Palmer continues, calling does not come from a voice out there. But something, uh, from, to become something I am not, it comes from a voice in here, in our hearts. Calling me to be the person I was born to be, to fulfill the original selfhood given to me at birth. It is important we as the church and as followers of Jesus begin to honor and learn this trait of honor, this character trait of honor, in such a way that we can learn to honor each other, not because of who we want somebody to be, but because who God created them to be. Honor is learning to honor somebody because of who God created them to be. For that reason, the self-awareness that is needed to learn this type of confidence and honor is usually grasped, as I said, by those coming off the street much quicker than those who have been brought up in the church. Those who grew up in the church only know how to honor those things that fit our molded comforts. Parker reflects on this, and he says, What a long time it can take to become the person one has always been. How often in this process we mask ourselves in faces that are not our own. How much dissolving and shaking of ego we must endure before we discover our deep identity, our true self. How long it can take to become the person which we've always been. 
the deepest vocational question or the deepest calling question is not what ought I do with my life. It is the most elemental and demanding, who am I? What is my nature? Who has God created me? On the back side of your bulletin, you'll see that there are some things that we're going to fill out. But in the bottom of it, there is a box, a shaded box in which there are two quadrants. One that says, where I long to be honored and where I struggle to honor others. And let me just ask you to turn to the back of that bulletin for a minute. And just for the next few seconds, write down in that box the one thing that you are suppressing this morning. The one place you would love to be honored, but you're scared to show because you know it won't be honored. We'll just take a second and I invite you to fill it out. Name it before the Lord. we talk about honor as a Christian trait that should be at the core of our identity as Christians and as a Christian community we are talking about an honor that is best described by the artist and spiritual seeker Herman Hess he could have been a cartoon too right Mortimer Mouse Oswald the Duck Herman Hess he says it's not our purpose to become each other it is to recognize each other to learn to see the other and honor them for what they are. I invite you this morning to turn with me to Romans 12, 3 through 14. And in this passage, Paul's writing to the church in Rome. It's a pretty health church community. It is full of diversity, and they are learning to live in that diversity in the shadow of the empire. And so Paul begins to remind them what Christian life should look like, and in doing so, he really gives them the DNA or the, the self-awareness of what living into this honor looks like. And, and N.T. Wright, uh, the theologian, says this about this passage as you're finding it. God gives different people different gifts that are needed to work of the gospel to flourish. Some people are born natural leaders. Some are born teachers. Others are naturally open, general, generously hearted people. But it's also a matter of grace. God's grace often enhances the abilities and the inclinations people already have. Birthright gifts, true self. But sometimes when the Spirit takes over someone's life, new gifts emerge that neither they or anyone else imagined before. And it is vital that the church should recognize and value these different gifts and that those whom they have been given should place them, their giftings, in service of the church. And then indeed Christians are to be the forefront for the whole world, right, of showing the rest of the world what genuine human life looks like. So as we read this passage, N.T. Wright sums it up and lays this foundation for us of how to read. For by the grace given, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us have one body and many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We all have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance to the faith. 
If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now we looked at this passage just first last year, you may remember. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, as we look at this passage and and we try to summarize it up, I think William Barclay also does a great summary of it. He says, each member of the Christian church has a task to do. And it's only when each member contributes the help of his or own task or birthright or birth gift that the body of Christ functions as it ought to function. This passage urges us to know ourselves. This passage urges us to accept ourselves. And Paul is saying that whatever gift a man has, that gift comes from God. And I would add, and deserves recognition and honor. Now, we literally could spend the next few months on this passage alone. It's how rich it is. Paul just like, it's like sermon point after sermon point in this passage. In addition to the main truths pointed out by N.T. Wright William Barclay, I think that Paul gives the church in this small passage five overarching realities to how we can learn to live out and manifest this Christian trait of honor that should be innately in us as we follow Jesus. This is where I invite you to follow along on the back of your bulletin. First, Paul writes in his passage, For by the grace given to me, I say to each one of you, do not think more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment, and according with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, I love this idea that if we're thinking of ourselves in a way that we shouldn't, it's like we're looking at ourselves as a drunk. He says, look at yourselves with sober judgment. Those of you who are acting on ego are drunk with your own ego amazing. The overarching theme of what I think Paul's getting at here is that our individual hearts and the heart of our church community needs to understand that honor is helping others to see the importance of their faith, that we are to do it all in accordance to the faith. Now secondly, we see that Paul writes in his passage this line that each one of us has a body, many members, and they don't all have the same function, and so on and so on. And, And he tells them to step in confidently and diligently into their calling. And in this way, I think we could summarize that Paul's saying the overarching reality here boils down to this. We need to opt to embrace giftings that are different than your own. You need to opt as a church to embrace giftings that are different than your own. And Paul continues to encourage them and write to them. And he says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. And when we live out this from our hearts, when we live out this encouragement Paul is giving us, 
from the heart of our church communities, our heart as individuals, I think what we see is that we are never to see ourselves better than anyone else. And honoring somebody in community is realizing that we are never better than anyone else. But man, we love to talk about people in a way that makes us think we're better than them. Man, we love to classify people or who in and out. Man, we love to classify how we could honor somebody more if they'd only be willing to fit our mold a little bit more. But Paul is saying we need to never see ourselves better than anyone else. Now Paul goes on, he says, never be lacking in zeal. By the way, I think that's the shift that's happening in our church. I think we're beginning to see zeal. That's what I noticed in worship this morning. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The posture Paul gives us here is that honor will offer blessings, hope, help, and hospitality. It doesn't judge, it doesn't try to remold somebody, and it doesn't attack somebody who's different. Offer, honor is offering blessings, hope, help, and hospitality to those in our church community. Now, the last part of that passage, which Paul wrote, was this. Bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with each other. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, if I were to try to lump all of what Paul says in that passage into one line, I would say that honor is being willing to run with people different than you, remembering both diversity and equality. We learn nothing, and we aren't the body of Christ if we all think and look a lot alike. We aren't the body of Christ or following Jesus if we only live into echo chambers of our friends and family that are the most like us. If diversity is absent, which it is, if equality is absent, which it is, then we aren't actually living into the Christian trait of honor. And we need to become aware of that. We need to repent of it. We need to begin to make changes so that we can develop a Christian trait of honor innately in our church community. Now, I think this passage reminds us that we all have different giftings, capabilities, callings, capacities, and functions as followers of Jesus in the church. The problem is we've trained people to fit certain slots that we think deserve our affirmations and our honor, and as a result, we actually have churches that are in identity crisis. We have individuals who are serving in places they shouldn't be. We have people who aren't serving who should really be leading the way forward for us. We have people leaving the church because they don't feel that they fit. Their giftings don't match. They don't sense honor or the uniqueness that God has created them to be. As the worship team begins to make their way forward, I encourage you to fill out that other quadrant, that other square. Name before the Lord the things in others that you find it a struggle to honor. And this week, begin to take a step in faith to overcome that with the Lord's help. How will you overcompensate for that? Aware of where you can't honor somebody, but now want to make that change. And as we close, I leave you with this challenge once again from Herman Hess. It is not our purpose to become each other. It is to recognize each other. 
and to learn to see each other and honor them for what they are. And I say, I see you. Do you see you and do you see those around you? I invite you to stand as we close in song.